Okay, everybody, welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. This is a special edition. I'm trying to squeeze this one in right before Christmas. I'm recording this today on December 21st, and I've got a return guest again, Michael Andrew, with us on the phone live, or live right now anyway, um, from the airport down in Puerto Rico. And um, this is my morning voice, so hopefully you can handle it. This is the earliest I've ever recorded an episode but I really wanted to talk to Mike before he got too far removed from his work in uh, Puerto Rico um, with after the hurricane relief. So he's been there for, uh, daggum, we're going to talk about, I don't know, 14, 15 weeks? Is That's that right. right. This is week 15. Yeah, this okay. will be week 15 okay. right now. So, yeah, man, thanks. Uh, welcome back on. Thanks for doing this for me <laughs> as you leave. How are you feeling right now as you're as you're done? Yeah, it's, it's surreal because I think there were, you know, most of my deployments are two or three weeks tops. And, um, it just got to a point where I had to kind of be open minded to the fact that I don't, I just didn't know when I was coming home and I shouldn't worry about it. I should just focus on the work. And so my return date has, has been open, you know, up until a couple of days ago. And, um, yeah, you know, like literally now that I'm in the airport, I can kind of feel like, uh, there's a lot of weight coming off my shoulders. I'm starting to decompress. It typically takes a couple days, and um, I, I, I'm exhausted. I, I think I've been battling exhaustion for probably the last 10 days. That's a strange thing in, in and of itself is because you, you get full night's sleep, but you wake up, and uh, mentally you're still exhausted. You know, you could fall asleep, you know, right after you got up in the morning, no problem, all day. You could sleep all day. And, so even my Sundays, I was sleeping all day, Sundays, my days off. And then, um, you know, I'd have to take naps. And so like exhaustion is a real thing. And if you've, if you've been there, it's kind of a, a miserable place because you're always tired and, uh, that'll be nice to get out of and, and to, uh, not worry about the, the work so much. And so I feel a lot of weight being lifted off my shoulders. That's the long answer. How much of a role did the exhaustion play in you deciding to come on home? Uh, I knew I was starting to get into trouble about 10 days ago when I, um, I do a lot of map work with GPS coordinates and I made a mistake. One of the, um, one of the numbers was off and, and I just usually don't make mistakes like that. And so when I started seeing these little things that I was, I was doing wrong, I became kind of worried because we had teams of people, you know, relying on having the correct data and, and making the correct decisions. And so I started seeing myself make these little mistakes. And uh, that's when I started questioning, questioning, you know, how, how much I, more I could do. And, and uh, as they continued, I, I just eventually had a conversation with leadership as I think I'd, I've reached the limit. So uh, about five weeks into it, I took a, a day off and that really, really helped. But I think, I think my new breaking point is about 13 and a half weeks, somewhere around there. Much <laughs> has to <do> it. <laughs> well, when you and I talked last time, a few months ago, you were in the Virgin Islands, and you you told me I don't know if you did on the well you did talk about Haiti, uh, I mean Puerto Rico when we were on in that interview, but what was it? What happened where you um, you said, hey, I need to I need to get out of the Virgin Islands and go over to uh, Puerto Rico. So a lot of what I do in disasters, and there's other disasters that I have the opportunity to go to, but as strange as this is going to sound. I just really listen to my feelings and my gut instincts, it, basically a vibe. You know, I try not to think about it too much, but I know 
in my heart when I'm supposed to go somewhere. It's a feeling that I can't deny. It's like, I know I'm supposed to get on a plane. I know I'm supposed to go over there. The strange thing about St. Thomas was when I got to St. Thomas, I remember driving through the city and we did a lot of great work in St. Thomas. Don't get me wrong, but I I had this overwhelming sensation that once I arrived there, that um, this was not the bulk, this was not the main reason I was there and to try to stay open-minded and flexible to what would happen and so we were, we were over there for Maria and we were locked in this little concrete um, room with a three by three inch ventilation hole, you know, and water was just shooting through this hole. It was kind of, it was a pretty scary experience. You know, even though we were in a safe place, it was pretty terrifying. But for whatever reason, after Maria passed and we kind of started getting things going again, I felt this overwhelming need to get over to Puerto Rico, which didn't really make any sense because I was in St. Thomas and uh, I had some conversations with headquarters of the Salvation Army and I just, I just told him, I said, I feel like I need to go over there. And um, so I, I was given permission. It was, a, it was a half hour flight. I just wanted to kind of get a feel for what was happening. And I came over and did some assessments in terms of the teams and, and made some recommendations. And basically what happened was the guy I had worked with in Nepal, uh, Bobby Myers, who's a tremendous team leader, probably one of the best the Salvation Army has, came over and, uh, you know, he, he was familiar with my work in Nepal and he asked if I would stay on as operations chief. And at the time, I don't think I had an idea of what I was getting into when I accepted that, but I looked at it as a, as a great opportunity and great challenge and I accepted it. So to answer your question is I listen to my feelings in terms of, uh, what lights my fire, so to speak, in terms of, uh, do I, do I feel like this is a place I can have a high impact? Or if I go there, you know, like Texas and Florida, there were opportunities to go there. And for whatever reason, I just didn't feel motivated or inspired to to go there. I can't even explain it. I, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I mean, and I want to get into some specifics with your experiences and leadership and conflicts. And, um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you was, you said that you felt like, I think you said your heart was on fire or your soul was on fire or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, for the, for the vast majority of the first 13 and a half weeks, it was as if my soul had been ignited and all the impurities were burning out of my system. And, and when I say that, it, it was like sort of like the impure desires of my heart. So take, for example, college football. I was obsessed with college football you know, two days before I got the phone call to come out. And, and once I was in the field, I, I hadn't thought of it since. I can't even tell you what the record is of my favorite team. I don't even know. And, um, you know, I, so all these little things that had taken up so much of my time and things I'd worry about, they just, they just become minimized. But the desire to serve and help people, it just gets super magnified. And that's all you think about. I mean, you just become consumed with it. And uh, I kind of describe it as hi- as hyper-focused sometimes. You just become obsessed with it, you know. And, and if you were in a day-to-day situation, you would think I'd be a lunatic because every word and sentence is about let's get, let's food, let's feed these hungry people. Let's do it better. Let's feed more, you know. And that's, I don't know if that explains it, but it's, it's like hyper-focused and all the little things disappear. They fade into the background. You know, my bills work. I haven't done anything for work in almost four months, you know, haven't, haven't done any photography lessons or video training or anything like that, because this is, this is all that's on my plate right now. 
and and it's a beautiful thing when you can when you can get it and find it. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, I imagine you just don't even have time, you know, just in your head to even think about or to entertain thoughts and ideas that don't matter because you've got so much more important task ahead of you and, and decisions. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Is all the important, all the unimportant things that are truly unimportant, they just fade away, and you don't think about them anymore. You, mm-hmm. you know, and I wish everybody could find something that just ignited their souls. You know, and and I think the type of work that you're doing um, is important too. I've, I've felt it making movies because it was something I just loved, but service for me is something that usually just lights my fire. And, and I'm not talking about like a, a couple hours. I'm talking about, you know, deployment. Um, I think, I think service whenever you can do it is great, but the longer you can stay in a service oriented situation, uh, the greater impact it's going to have on your mind and your, your body and your soul it changes people in in the best of ways. It's like an antidepressant almost. Oh, I is believe that. When that. you're serving people, it, it is. I, I really think service is the it's the ultimate drug with no side effects in terms of uh, antidepressants. Um, you, you you feel I don't know significant yeah, like you're you're doing meaningful work and you're changing lives. You're you're really helping people. And the food that we bring, it's not a lot. You know, we're talking about a case of water. And maybe a box or two of food, you know, there's 18 meals in a box. So a family of three or four, it's not going to last them that long. But what you're doing is you're, you're bringing them hope. You know, if you drive up into the mountains and you hike up a hill and you show, and you carry this food to someone's doorstep and, and here's somebody who's been traumatized by, you know, a, a major disaster and a stranger shows up with food, even though it's not a lot, that sparks their fire that somebody cared enough to show up. You, you know what I'm saying? And what you're really, what we're really doing is giving them hope. Here's some hope that somebody cares about you. You know, here's some hope that it will be better. You know, here's some hope that you're not forgotten. And that changes people. And, uh, you know, I saw that. I, I first started seeing that in St. Thomas when Craig and I, my uh, disaster aid partner there, we, all we had was water two gallon jugs of water that were taken door to door. And we were in a neighborhood that was, seemed like they were doing okay, but they all accepted the water and were like, what's going on? You know, why, why are they accepting this water from us when they probably can get some themselves? And we came to the conclusion that it wasn't the water that they were accepting. It was, they were accepting the, the hope that um, somebody had brought to them. And so I think, you know, the, I love the feeding missions in, in that we do here. And, and I think we just, I think that was really what we were delivering to people was, was the hope to, Hey, it's going to be okay. You can carry on. Here's some food, you know, but just know that you're cared about. And, uh, what a great, I mean, just so thankful to have that kind of an opportunity to do that for three and a half months and, and um, wanted to stay in that environment and to let, to let what we did change me is, is what I'm trying to explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but it was, it was very transformative for all, for all involved. Well, I was, uh, as you and I talked quickly yesterday or something, I had this thought of uh, Kramer on Seinfeld and how he shows up at a building one day, <laughs> you know, for w- whatever reason, and he ends up getting into this conference, this meeting, and he starts working <laughs> for this company, <laughs> and he's bringing home work, and, and, and that's what I thought about with you, because you're not employed by the Salvation Army or by any other organization, right. and here you are in leadership positions, and you're giving orders, 
and people are responding, and of course there's some conflict, and you're like, hey, he goes or I go. And it just reminded me of yeah. the, you know, the guy, the, the boss talking to Kramer is like, you know, hey, your work, we got to talk to you about this. And Kramer's like, well, I don't even really work here. And he says, well, that's what makes this <laughs> <Yeah>. so difficult. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but you were in a, what, what leadership roles were you in? I guess let's talk about what you were doing. So mainly, uh, my, my main job here was operations chief. And my job is responsible for taking everything out of the warehouse to the people who need it. That's, essentially it. So the, the short terms of de- definitions of logistics, sometimes people hear that. That's everything coming from the outside going into the warehouse. Operations is everything from the warehouse going out. And uh, it was interesting, you know, because uh, we, we had a lot of volunteers come in. I think we had over 100 different volu- or volunteers or um, people working for the Salvation Army or officers. You know, they have, they have different ranks depending on how long they've been in there. And for for many of them, for most of them, they didn't know who I was or what my background was with, with the Salvation Army. This is disaster number eight. So I have a lot of experience in terms of, of uh, being an operator and working on teams. Uh, and, and so I think maybe sometimes that could have been overlooked, you know, by, by certain individuals. But for the most part, the vast majority, we got along. You know, everybody, for the most part, got along in terms of the situations that we were working in. And in some cases I had to earn their trust that I knew what I was talking about. And I think once that happened, it was pretty straightforward. You know, I didn't, I didn't really have many huge problems with people. And so, um, it was, uh, you know, getting out into a very chaotic situation where you're dealing with a lot of moving parts and being able to control that in a, in a, in an organized way, I think that's something that people just, they, they wanted to be part of. And so if I, if I would tell somebody, Hey, this is what I need you to do in order for the team to, to be effective. And they would see the need, it, everything kind of clicked and came together, you know? And, um, only on rare occasions, I think there was maybe one or two occasions out in the field where, uh, you know, we were out working and somebody challenged me and I, I said, you're going to do this because I'm the operations chief and you need to listen to me, <laughs> you know? So I think, I think for the hundreds of people that I work with, I think I said that once, you know, and um, by the end of, of most of the deployments, I think I had won their trust in terms that I knew what I was doing, but I, the biggest support came from the Salvation Army leadership themselves. Is they, they were familiar with me and in my work in the past. And so from their angle, you know, it wasn't like I was just showing up and brand new, you know, they, they knew um, about my past deployments and experiences. So uh, from their side, it wasn't, you know, like the Kramer, but probably from everybody else's, you know, perspective, that's probably what it looked like. Yeah. Right. Well, what, what are some things that when you showed up there or maybe you were put in the position as operations chief, is there something that maybe you had, uh, you had learned before and you realized, Hey, you know what? This is what I felt confident in doing it this yeah, way, but it, it's not going to work this way here in Puerto Rico. So I've got to adjust. Yeah. And, and, it works differently. Yep. So there are a, a few themes that I really visited daily. And um, one of them was that speed is greater than perfection. Because if you go for perfection or if you think perfection is, is the name of the game in disaster aid, you're never going to be successful because every distribution we did was imperfect. 
we didn't get to every single person in the areas that we wanted to. We, we didn't save a perfect amount of time. But if you can uh, rely on the idea that it's imperfect and that perfection is your enemy, you can do a lot of things quickly. And um, so basically what happened was, you know, I wrote a book in, in April. It was published called The Efficiency Playbook. We've talked about it a little bit. There's all these little tactics of ways to become more efficient. And, and what it, strangely it became was every day was a classroom or an experiment to test those theories out to see how they would work. And I, I kid you not, we used every chapter in that book in different ways to deal with the chaos of, uh, you know, taking, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of meals out to an area within a limited amount of time. You have to be mindful of that. And uh, you have to stay, as you said, flexible to the situation. And there were, there were times we made mistakes, but for the most part, we still got the job done. And, and uh, But, yeah, you have to be able to adapt on the fly, and the situation changes. So it's, it's a really great training ground for uh, changing, changing your plans and adapting and following your instinct. You know, there's a lot of times I didn't think it was just a feeling or a vibe. This is how we should do it. But the, the uh, principles of efficiency were applied heavily. And um, we just had to stay flexible and open-minded. And, it, you know, there were a couple times I'd have people come up to me and say, hey, you know what, maybe we should do this. And when you're in the heat of battle, you don't want to hear that, you know. But I listened to them because they were right. They had a suggestion. I said, yeah, you know what, that, that is a good suggestion. Um, so I think a good leader is open to uh, listening to ideas coming in. And so that's tried, that's pretty much what I tried to do is focus on the task at hand and not so much perfection or my plan specifically. Yeah. What about what, how you portrayed yourself as far as confidence? Because at least the fact that I know you've always seemed pretty confident in your abilities. Was there a time when you felt that maybe uh, did your confidence ever lack while you were there? And if so, did you did you think about hey, I've got to make sure that I don't ever come across as looking not confident because I'm a leader here? In the in the very beginning, when I found out I was I was going to be uh, a leader, I was a little nervous because I hadn't been in that role before, and I just I just basically said to myself, you have a lot of experience, you know, in disasters and and rely on that experience and your instincts. There's a book uh, by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, and it's about thin slicing, where it's just basically follow your instincts when you're trained in something. And and I just reminded myself that I had a lot of experience and, and that I could probably, um, you know, rely on those feelings. But I also told myself, you know what, if I make a mistake, I'm just going to admit it. I'm just going to say, yeah, you know what, I made a mistake, I, you know, I screwed up. And I, I think that once... I got to that point of trying to avoid perfection and just accepting that I have flaws and, and uh, I'm not going to be right every time. That made it a lot easier for me as a leader to move forward. And, you know, uh, for the most part, things are so chaotic on a distribution day. and Things are moving so fast that sometimes, uh, you know, people don't really challenge you so much if you, if you have a good plan. And I remember the first time we went out with the HSI security teams, this is Homeland Security, they heavily armed, you know, machine guns, basically body armor. We take these guys out and a lot of them have um, military background, you know? And so I remember the first time we took them out, you know, at every, at every turn, they were questioning me, you know, what about this? What about that? And, um, 
you know, I'd give them my answers, but at the end of the day, I had won them over. And from that, from that time forward, we just had a great partnership and they, I I felt like they respected uh, my leadership abilities and that just helped for the confidence. But I I think those, the thing, the idea of just knowing that you're not going to be perfect, be able to admit when you're wrong, frankly, and quickly and move forward. uh, It's going to eliminate a lot of doubts that anybody has about being a leader. Well, and slightly different question then. What about, were there any weaknesses that you had, that you knew you had, that you were able to make strong while you were there? Um, let me think about that. There's obviously, there were some, uh, one of my weaknesses was planning. I wasn't a great planner. And um, what, it, what I quickly learned was that there were so many moving parts every day that I had to develop planning systems. And uh, so, you know, we might have 20 or 30 or 40 people coming out on a distribution. And then we had a fleet of cars. There might be anywhere from seven to 16 cars. And there had to be assignments of every person into every vehicle. And I had to keep track of which vehicle was breaking and things, you know, these two people don't get along and we need a Spanish speaker in, in this car. And so what I did was I developed a magnet board that, so everybody had a magnet, you know, for their name and for the vehicle. And so I could, I could assign, vehicles, team leaders, and team members literally within a minute, you know, maybe, maybe 30 people and everybody could see it on the board. I didn't have to write it down, you know, and then what I, what, what I would do is assign, uh, you know, call signs, alpha, beta, Charlie, you know, sorry, alpha, bravo, Charlie. And, um, then we also started implementing walkie talkies for each of the teams. And so when I first got to Puerto Rico, the, uh, you know, the cell towers are down. And so, you didn't have GPS navigation and you couldn't call each other. So if they got, if they made a wrong turn, guess what? They're gone, you know? And so these were some of the problems that I saw early on that I would, I would be challenged in terms of my planning because my planning wasn't, wasn't really great. But, um, we, we absolutely, um, got that straightened out and we had redundancies. We, um, figured out if we downloaded Google maps to our devices, they would work offline we use GPS coordinates for everything. And so we eventually just built redundancies into the planning. So everybody had a team leader. All the team leaders had the GPS. All the team leaders had walkie-talkies. You know, we would even identify which streets they were on. So in, the, in all the missions that we did, which, I mean, it has to be over 100 different missions, we never lost anybody. Nobody ever got lost, which was something I was really proud of. And um, the planning on the maps, you know, if we had a location in the past, what we would do is we would show up and, um, you know, start distributing. But what I learned was that if I could use Google Maps or another app called Maps Me, I could pre-scout the location and I could look at the house density and I could find staging areas for our big truck, which needed to be parked in a secure location. And then um, we had a printer, so I was able to print up maps. And I have a really cool video I'd like to, I'll show you sometime. But basically when, when the team showed up in the morning, I didn't, I didn't have to tell them anything. I would just hand them a map and the map would have a star on it. And that star would have a GPS location. So they would plug that into their devices. Everybody knew where we were going. They knew which houses they were going to be delivering to. And that, that really streamlined the process. So it was definitely planning and, and preparation in terms of a, uh, how that information would be disseminated, but that that would probably be it. That'd be the main one right there. Hmm, okay. Did you ever get lost? 
I got lost the uh, first two nights I was here. And the, the problem again was I couldn't navigate because uh, Google Maps wasn't working. So the first night I, I came back, I was uh, eventually, it's kind of a long story, but I was forgotten at the airport. So I went to, to go rent a car and uh, I found them eventually and they couldn't find the way home, which was kind of embarrassing because they had been there, you know, for couple weeks and um, we had to track down some police and the police had to physically take us to our headquarters you know electricity is off there's no lights it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere and um, that happened the next day too and I, I just I was so frustrated and I was thinking you know what if we if we can't figure out how to navigate we're in a lot of trouble we're not going to get anything done and so that's when we figured out about you can download offline maps. And so we had, we had to go up to San Juan to find an internet connection. Literally, there's no internet connection on the, almost the whole island. And then once we did that, we were good moving from that time forward. But yeah, we got lost. Many people got lost in the beginning. Hmm. Well, uh, while I'm thinking about it, where in Puerto Rico did you spend your time? Because some people, some listeners will be familiar with it. Sure. Uh, I was stationed at a, an emergency services building in a city called Caguas, kind of more in the center part of the island. And um, that's just south of San Juan. But we worked all over. Uh, I, I was pretty much all over the map from Aquadilla to Tuado, down to Ponce, uh, Umacao, Manabo, Fajardo. We, we were really all over the place at some point or another. We did a lot of work at Uncos. I uh, did a lot of work in, the, in Las Piedras, and uh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much all over the island. Okay, um, Mike. What about miracles? How often did you did you witness miracles every day, and or how often, and what were some of them? Um, there were a couple things I'll real quick share with you. There was a boulder that had rolled down the hill and had uh, literally stopped in front of a person's house who had a statue of Jesus holding his arms up, and, it, and the arms were broken off the Jesus statue. But looking at it, there, we don't know how that boulder stopped there. But I think most of the, the miracles that happened were um, basically with, with connecting with people who had been hurt, you know, and, and who were down and, and not feeling like they wanted to go on. That's really where the magic happened, the, the one-on-one interactions. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, what about the? Um, we talk about the, the water filter situation, and because that, oh, yeah. that seemed mm-hmm. kind of miraculous to me, and how the, the your friend yeah. stepped in and raised a lot of money. Yeah, you know, yeah. Now that you say it, it, that was definitely a miracle. And I'm sure if I had some more time to think about it, I could come up with, with tons. But basically, uh, I had a I had a, a fellow YouTuber. I make videos on YouTube and. And her name is Chelsea Northrup. Her husband's, husband's Tony had a huge photography channel. And she tweeted that she had relatives she couldn't reach. And I knew I was going to be there. And I was like, hey, maybe I can check in on them for you. And uh, one thing led to another. We started talking and she said she wanted to help. And she's just like, well, what, you know, what do you think would be the best thing? And I'd say probably water filters because it's the last thing people think of. And so she did her homework and her due diligence. I have to give her a lot of credit. It pretty much almost all of it. Uh, she ran a fundraiser and raised $50,000 on her YouTube channel and uh, through social media. And she sent those filters out to me here through UPS, which was um, also free. The shipping was free. So almost a hundred percent of the money, you know, save some transaction fees went 
to that effort. And I, I thought that was amazing. It was basically photographers coming together to buy water filters. And I was able to distribute those. She came out for a couple of days with her husband, Tony, and uh, they're dear friends now. I, I love them to death. And, and uh, that, I thought that was just a really wonderful experience to show, you know, what an individual like, like Chelsea and, and Tony can, can do when, when the opportunity is there. And um, I think they're both wired for it. I, I'm very interested to see uh, what kind of disaster work they're going to do in the future. But yeah, that was a miracle in and of itself because she basically supplied, you know, millions of bottles of water, you know, not te- technically in bottles, but the clean amounts to complete strangers. And that's pretty yeah. mind blowing. And there's a there's a really good you know, video they did uh, that's that's got you and them in it and that that's been shared online. If I can if I can find that link quick enough, I will attack. I'll put it in the show notes because you you were actually that's one thing I kind of wanted to stress to people is you were delivering personally a lot of these filters. Yeah, I would say the vast. In fact, I think almost all of them either I hand delivered or gave to somebody to hand deliver, you know, so we had a lot of team members that would go out to different areas. Uh, HSI, again, we teamed up with them. They were taking helicopters out. We did a couple helicopter missions with them in Blackhawks. And so to these remote locations where people didn't have access to clean water and, um, Chelsea's filters were, were given out. We, the Salvation Army bought about 70 or 80 grand worth. And, and those are almost all given out. And, um, that was just a tremendous experience in and of itself is one of the highlights I think of, of the trip was uh, working with Chelsea and Tony and, and meeting them. And, and it was just, just amazing. Yeah. There's a good picture that shows you like, demonstrating to some of the people how they work and that the water, you yeah. can actually trust the water and there it is. You got it pouring in your mouth and all in your face. Yeah. That was scary because uh, we didn't know if we would get sick or not from them. And we were, we were worried about it for a little bit. We were like, hey, if we get these filters out and people get sick, I mean, we could be in a lot of trouble, you know. And so we did the research in the Department of Health. They had to clear which filters we could distribute. And at the time, that was the only one we could. But what happened was we went to this watering hole, and that's on the video. We started handing them out, and people wouldn't use them because they didn't trust them. And so we would basically say, well, watch me do it. I'll drink this water. It's fine. And once they saw you drink it, then they were like, oh, this is, this is amazing because every filter was worth 300 gallons. And there was a, you know, a water source coming out of the mountain. It wasn't clean, but if you use the filter, then you could, you could drink it. So Chelsea drank some hers too. And so once we, sh- once we showed them that safe, then people started, you know, realizing what it was all about. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, Mike, what about some conflicts? Can you talk about, and this might be a broad question, I know, but some conflicts that you encountered and how you dealt with them, and are there some that you kind of regret how you handled them and would have done differently, if you would do differently if you could do it over again? Yeah, there are there are some things. Um, well, let's just put it, there's always conflict. When you work with, you know, a couple hundred people, there are going to be a couple of them that you don't get along with, but for the most part, if you just say, hey, this is our common goal, this is what we're working yeah. on, this is what we're doing, and, and if everybody's on the same page, there's no problem. You can work through a lot of the personality conflicts. Um, there were a few times out in the field where people would challenge me, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you distributing? You know, And uh, I would just show them my FEMA pass. I had a FEMA pass that allowed me to get into the JFO, which is where a lot of this stuff happened, and 
probably not the way it was supposed to be used, but I just point out and say, hey, FEMA knows we're out here. We're distributing food. If you have a problem, take it up with them. You know, and so that, that happened a couple times. Uh, the rest of the conflicts and stuff, they really weren't, I don't, I don't think they're really worth noting. And um, I just decided to not talk about them and kind of move on, you know. But, uh, yeah, every day there's some, some little thing that happens. But, you know, there's big thoughts and little thoughts. So you think about the big thought, hey, let's feed. Let's go out and feed a couple thousand families today versus I don't like this person because X, Y, Z. That's a little thought, you know. And so uh, little thoughts I dismiss, big thoughts. Embrace, you know. Yeah. Well, you you have employed people for many years in your work, and so I'm thinking. I wonder now in this in the leadership role that you had and for so long in Puerto Rico. I mean, what kind of qualities do you look for in people that that are going to work for you in that role down there in volunteer work? And and is it are they the same even if they're going to work for you in your in your personal businesses? Um. You know, the the red flags are when, uh, I'm going to be very honest now, it is, is the red flags are when inexperienced people try to counsel you on a topic that you are highly experienced in. I think that's a red flag right off the bat, you know. So if, if I have all this experience and somebody just gets off the plane and they, they start count, trying to counsel me about how I'm doing something, pretty big pretty big warning flag. Um, I, that would also go in business. You know, if I've been shooting with DSLRs for 10 years and somebody picks up the camera for the first time and they think they know more about it than me, probably not going to listen to them. Uh, I listen, you know, I listen to people who are doing better than I am in certain situations. So if they have more experience and more leadership and they've, they've been around the world more and more disasters, probably going to listen, more likely to listen to them more. If they don't have any experience, probably not going to listen to them. And, um, you know, that's kind of my rule of thumb, but the, those with the open minds, the, the volunteers who come in and say, Hey, I'll do anything. I'll clean toilets. If you need me to clean toilets, when somebody says that they're, they're gold. Uh, and a lot of these volunteers came with very highly experienced backgrounds. Some of them were EDS directions, emergency disaster service directors. And they just came in and said, I'm just here to help. I'll do whatever, whatever's needed. Uh, when somebody has, that willingness to serve and they're open-minded and open-hearted, uh, the process of losing the ego is really powerful. And, um, it, you know, I'm going to have a podcast on that is, is the relationship of a willing heart to losing your ego. And, and it will, it will kill it. All you have to do is put yourself into a situation to be humble, do some work, serve somebody who really needs it. It, it will change your life. It really will. But I, I think the open-hearted and open-mindedness is uh, the main thing I look for. Ah, those are good. Yeah, this is good stuff. And uh, I, we'll wrap it up here in a minute, Mike. Uh, you, I know you had told me uh, we talked about your soul being on fire, but you also said that you would you felt reborn and more confident. Do you want to la- elaborate on that at all? Um, I feel very different uh, as a person. I, I do feel reborn. As a person, I think I'm very different. I need to figure out how to hang on to that because the mentality I have in my secular life, you know, regular everyday life is very different. It's not as focused. And so I'm trying to figure out how to, how to keep that. But I do feel very different in terms of the things that I, I've learned. Uh, you know, I got, have to give credit to the people that I worked with, the teams. None of it would be possible without, you know, we had AmeriCorps, 
a great group of volunteers. HSI, we had the Coast Guard volunteers. We had the FBI volunteers. We had all these different volunteers. And we just came together as a team. And I think those relationships are going to change me, the friendships I've made. Uh, but I also look right now I'm looking at my life in terms of what's important and what isn't important. And I really want to weed out um, things and people that don't benefit me. You know, if it's not a, if it's not a constructive, positive relationship, I, I kind of don't want to be in it anymore. Maybe that sounds brutal, but life is too short and um, our time is too precious to waste it on things that aren't going to make you better. And uh, I think that's one of the big thoughts I have. And I, I also feel definitely more confident in, in terms of the leadership, but I also still, still feel very humbled in that I, I want to learn as much as I can to become a better leader. And um, I have a great friend in the Salvation Army. You know, he, he pulled me aside and basically said, hey, you're doing a great job, but if you want to work on something, work on this. You know, and it's basically finding another gear. You know, I have a very, a very fast, hard gear for leading teams, and I need to find a softer gear, you know, something a little bit more not as fast. It, 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 that really is going to change depending on who I'm working with and the situation. And so there's definitely things that I know I need to work on. And uh, so grateful to have friends to say, Mike, you got to fix this, you know. And uh, I, w I don't want to be perfect. It's too hard. I want to be better. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, and that's really good leadership advice. And you talked about that a little earlier about you cannot – you're going to make mistakes. And don't act like you're not going to make any. It's going to happen. Yep. Perfection's your enemy. And um, I'll talk about that. I think – before this trip, especially in my production work, I focused a lot on, on perfection. Perfection is a really bad thing. Um, I think people mentally are striving for it. People don't, you know, they don't want to admit faults or errors and be wrong. But if you just realize that perfection is your enemy, you're going to grow a lot, you know, from that. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've seen how people really do relate to others. When, when somebody admits, hey, I screwed up, or hey, this is really hard for me, if you kind of open up a little bit and say, this is what I've struggled with, I think people are going to like you more. They're going to be able to relate to you more. Yeah. Yeah, when you can admit a, admit a flaw, especially in a group setting with a lot of people, uh, you're going to win a lot, a lot of people over. If you, if you try to come across as being perfect and making no errors, they're just going to look for a crack in the armor. And when they find it, they're just going to magnify it, you know? So it's just easier just to just admit it. Hey, I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. Or, Hey, I did this wrong. I'm sorry about it. You know? Yeah. Because it doesn't, it doesn't show lack of uh, confidence or lack of ability and especially how you respond to it and what you learn from it also helps. And that, that shows your confidence in yourself and in your abilities to lead. Yeah, it, it, you know, that comes back to this perfection is your enemy. You know, if, if you can just be really frank and say, hey, I made a mistake. This is what I did wrong. And uh, we would have ops meetings at the end of the day where everybody would come together and, and we would say, what did we do wrong today as a team? You know, that was the first thing we talk about. Let's find out what we did wrong and how we can fix it and how we can get better and not do it again. Uh, but we, we made the errors and the mistake making a regular dialogue every day. This is what went wrong today. Or, Hey, I wish we would have parked the truck this way. Or, hey, I wish we would have done this better. And uh, once, once you reveal to your team that you're not perfect, 
and you're willing to talk about your your errors, they don't look for them as much. They're not trying to to pull you down off off your high horse or whatever, you know. So that's something very valuable I learned. Well, Mike, what else do you want to share in closing before we wrap it up so you can get on your plane? Yeah, they're boarding here pretty soon. Um, I just want to say just um, I think the overwhelming thought right now is just complete gratitude for the opportunity. I feel like the luckiest man alive. Uh, You know, at some point, you know, when I was out on the deployment, I I was telling Chelsea, you know, I feel like I'm the richest man in the world and it had nothing to do with money. It had to do with with the opportunity to serve every day to people who needed it. And and it, it felt like, I was wealthy. I had everything I wanted, which was a really a strange thing because it had nothing to do with money. It, it had to be, it had to do with a sense of fulfillment. And, um, and I, you know, I want to hang on to that. You know, when I go home, I'll be looking how I spend my time. I don't want to waste it. I want to find things that help me feel fulfilled. And some of that has to do with my, you know, the way I run my business. I can take time off. You'd have to be able to, you know, have some income that would allow you to do that. But, uh, wealth has very little to do with finances. It has more to do with freedom and service. I think uh, if you're wired for it, service is the greatest thing you can do. And if, and if you're feeling depressed or unhappy, serve somebody who really needs it and watch how it changes you. And uh, that, those are kind of the thoughts I'd like to leave with uh, your listeners is um, it's about service and just being grateful for everything that I have, for health, you know, my, my job, my friends, so many great people I met out here and worked with. And um, that's what I'd kind of want to leave with you guys. Man, I appreciate it, too. So where to now? Where are you going? Are you going home or somewhere else so you can recover? Um, so I, I need about three or four days to decompress. A lot of that will be sleeping, and a lot of that will be uh, note-taking. I'll, I'll make some notes about, you know, what I've learned and because that information fades. If I don't write it down now, I'll forget about it. Uh, there's a video that's coming out about us on a distribution. We had a videographer can't come, so we're going to edit that together. But I'm going to uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, for probably about five or six days to decompress, relax, try not to think about anything other than, you know, gathering my thoughts, have some fun. And then uh, I'll head back to Maui and I'll start working on my business. Um, the, you know, there's an app that we tested out here and we're going to refine it and make it better and hopefully use that in future deployments. But basically, uh, Salt Lake for a week and then Maui for here on out. Well, great. Well, great. Thank you very much, Mike. It's, it's awesome to hear from you and it's been great following you. I'll uh, put some links in the show notes to your Instagram again and uh, to anything else I can find on kind of a short notice because I want to get this out here pretty quick, maybe in, in, in the okay. next day or so. And I know Excellent. you're going to be you're going to go into some depth in your podcast on the Maven Nation about a lot of things you mm-hmm. learned. So that's going yeah, to be I'll, good. I'll, yeah, I appreciate that so much, Dad. You know, and, and a lot of the things that if you, had, if you had not asked me now, I probably wouldn't have even remembered. So thank you for uh, bringing me onto the show again. You've, you've been very kind to me in that way. And, and uh, well, I'll touch base with you when I get into Salt Lake. Yeah, great. Well, you are what the show is about. I mean, you're the exact person that Patriot to the core wants on their show because you, you go out and do something and you serve right. others and you never served the military. And even though that's right, 90 something percent of my guests are military or former, you know, some are not, you're one of those, which is 
just fine because we can serve in many, many ways. I appreciate you recognizing that. I mean, I wish there are times I kind of wish I would have served in the military because I think there's a lot of just so many great things to be learned from that experience. And I think it is service. And uh, so grateful to our veterans and, and everybody who is serving currently and who will serve. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. So thank you for considering me uh, as somebody worthy of your podcast. And you, you're, you're a great friend, Dad. I, I know you know that. And, um, yeah, if there's anything else I can, I can do for you in the future, I'd love to have you out on a disaster sometime to come with me and experience it and see what it's like firsthand. Yeah, I'll be there. It'll probably be a few years, but but I'll be there. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. in, in the meantime, I'm sure we're going to have more uh, tornadoes or something here in my area, so we always have these smaller opportunities to serve as well. Uh, we usually <laughs> yeah. aren't, aren't lacking in those at least every few years. But uh, since this is kind of a raw file, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up here. And uh, okay. I appreciate everybody listening. And uh, if you're listening, especially on an, um, on an Apple uh, podcast, they've made it very easy now to rate the podcast. You can easily scroll down on your phone or your device, and it says rate this podcast. It's so easy now. Please do that and because uh, that really helps get the word out and helps the podcast to be more easily found. Um, also, uh, please uh, follow Michael on uh, his Instagram if you'd like to. I'll, I'll put that in the show. What is, what is your Instagram, Mike? I am at Michael the Maven, and uh, typically when I'm not doing disasters, I'm a instructional video producer. I make training videos on cameras. So if you're looking to shoot photography, if you have a camera, probably have a training video that you would be interested in. Yeah, so so you can y'all can follow him that way. You're also at Michael the Maven on Twitter as well, right? Yep, that is correct. Okay. Well, it's been awesome. Thanks, buddy. Great talking to you. you get some rest, and uh, I'll talk to you. Maybe update me in several days after you get some get some sleep. Okay. Thank you so much, Dad. Thank you to the, thank you to your podcast, Teach You to the Core, and I'll see you next time. All right. See you.